Are there voices out there that you just kind of tune out sometimes? I mean, we all have them, don't we? Maybe you're a kid and you've got like the voices of your parents. They're telling you, hey, you got this homework to do. Have you done your chores? You're like, yeah, mom, yeah, dad. And really you're just thinking, ah, I'm not really paying attention. I'm doing my own thing. <laughs> Maybe it's your kids, right? And they're coming to you, mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad. And you're just thinking later, later, later. And later is always a ways away. Maybe it's the talking heads on TV and you're just like, oh, I'm tuning this out. It's too much madness, too much craziness in the world. We all have these voices that we just kind of tune out. We become complacent with. You know, last week we jumped in and we started uh, looking through the book of Zephaniah and we looked at chapter one and one of the things we saw was that everybody had an opinion. There was a whole lot of noise about how Judah should feel and how Judah should act and how Judah should live. But Zephaniah, he's writing to tell the people of Judah that only God has the say. And so these people, this produces all kinds of like a double-mindedness, superstition, hypocrisy. They're dealing with all this. This is why Zephaniah is trying to tell them, no, only God has the say. You're getting distracted by all this stuff. And we can look at that and say, well, yeah, obviously only God has the say. But oftentimes, we don't hear them either, do we? We get distracted by all the voices, all the opinions. It's easy to grow complacent. It's easy to grow apathetic. It's easy to ignore the word of God and trust that he really does have the say. You know, Zephaniah, he was one of the last pre-exilic uh, prophets. Uh, that is, he was one of the last ones to prophesy before the Babylonian exile. Uh, he, along with uh, Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of his, it's just that Jeremiah prophesied longer than Zephaniah did. But they were some of the last ones to tell Judah, hey, repent, things are not looking good. Uh, Zephaniah, though, he preached this message during a time of relative prosperity. It would be another 50 years before the Babylonian exile actually came to pass. And so when Zephaniah says things like the day of the Lord is near and it's hastening fast, well, there's still 50 years to go. And this day of wrath, this day of destruction that Zephaniah, he talks about, he, he says this day is going to be full with clouds and it's going to be full of thick darkness. See, Zephaniah, his prophecy, it had two fulfillments. It had this near fulfillment of the Babylonian exile, but it also, also has the long fulfillment of God's final judgment. And so the question to Judah at the time was, do you really believe that this destruction of Judah is imminent? And the question for us now with Zephaniah's prophecy is, do we really believe that this final judgment is imminent? Uh, and the truth is, most people don't. Most people don't believe there's ever going to be a day that's anything like this, a day of thick darkness and clouds, a day of the Lord that's hastening and hastening fast when he judges sin fully and finally, and he sweeps all these things away. Most of us don't believe anything like this will ever happen. And if we don't, then we're a whole lot like the people that Zephaniah wrote about, people who do not believe that God will do good or he will do bad. Do you think that the people during Zephaniah's day really thought that God would bring this kind of destruction upon Judah? I mean, hey, they're, they're in the Davidic line. They've got these kings. They, this, they've been around as a nation for Judah for 400 years. You factor in their time with Israel and everything. It's been over 450 years they've enjoyed. Uh, it's been a long time. 
And so now everything's going to go up in smoke. They're going to be exiled off. This destruction, it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> See, they've been around a whole lot longer. They, got, they had a whole lot richer of a legacy than even we do here in the United States. Things were looking up when Zephaniah talked, and he says they're going to be wiped out. And you can imagine the people just saying, come on, really, Zephaniah? I mean, is that really going to happen? The people were complacent. And God's sweeping away would come for that complacency. It would come for Judah. It would come for the surrounding nations too. That's what God tells us through his prophet in chapter 2. And this morning, what I want to do is I just want to look at chapters 2 and 3 with you. We're just going to kind of bounce in and out here just a little bit. Let's go ahead and get started. Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, the prophet writes, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord." Now I need to stop and just camp out here for a few minutes because there is so much false teaching or so much just simply ignorance as to the wrath of God. That there's this whole ignorant idea that, hey, you know, this is just incompatible with a loving God, a God of wrath and a God of love. They, they just don't go together. They, they, so these people, they don't really bother to engage the biblical text and actually ask, hey, God, what, how do you reveal yourself to us? They just say, well, God, God is love. He couldn't be like this. Let's, let's just kind of move on. Other people say, well, you know, we got enough problems today to deal with. Let's, let's just pro focus on the problems that are here and now on earth. And, and there's some truth to that. We do need to focus on those things. But then they just set all of this aside. Hey, let, let's just set aside. Uh, we don't need to speak about wrath. We don't need to speak about hell. We don't need to talk about these things. Let's just focus on now and, and try to make where we live here a little bit better. Perhaps most common, though, is, is kind of sidestepping this issue altogether, this offense of God's punishment, of him dealing with sin. If you describe it not so much as God's anger being poured out on sinners, but it's described as simply allowing uh, God allowing your sin to bring about its own natural consequences. And there's some truth to that. Our, our, choice, our choices, the choices we make, they do carry natural consequences. Uh, so this is C.S. Lewis's explanation of this. And I really like C.S. Lewis, but, but he says that hell is simply our natural consequence for going our own way. Now, in one sense, that's true, but it really misses the scope of how God reveals it in Scripture. Because this is not merely God giving you over. It's not merely God handing you over. But it's God actively punishing people justly for their sin. His anger burning against them, sweeping them away. This is how God reveals himself in the scriptures. And there's just this astounding lack of discernment that's going on with very dear Christians who often just hear this side step. Oh, it's just our, we're just suffering the consequences of our own sin. It's just natural consequences. God wouldn't really do anything like that. He just allows it to happen. 
It, it's stuff like that that we hear. And we say, oh, that really helps me. That's so good. Understand? This, this is not helping people. When, when people hear things like that, and they say, oh, what a brush of fresh air. This is so nice. Gives me this whole other view of God. I, I, I really like that. That makes me feel comfortable. This is amazing. I found out that God doesn't really have rules. It's simply relationship. He doesn't punish people for their sin. It's, sin is its own punishment. Listen, that does not lead people to the living God or to the loving God because the loving God actively punishes sin. He loves us, yes, but he does not love us enough to leave us simply as we are. He wants to sweep away all of that double-mindedness, all of those little superstitions, all of that hypocrisy. He sweeps it all away. His anger burns against it. But we read things like that and understand many Christians would be downright embarrassed to go through the minor prophets and to hear this, these scriptures just preached and taught. I mean, verses like gather together before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord. See, there's this alarm sounding and we've got to get the storyline of the Bible right because there's two different storylines going on in the church. One storyline story goes like this, that, hey, God just loves everybody. He loves everybody in just the same way, a matter of fact. He, he loves us all just the same, just how, how we are. He has this unconditional, universal acceptance. And Jesus died on the cross to show you how much he loves you. And you simply need to believe that you are loved and accepted and just accept that acceptance. That's one storyline in the Bible. There is this other storyline though. And it goes like this, that God loves his people in a covenantal way. That God is a God of holiness and that Jesus died in order to make us holy. He died for our sin, to pay for our sin, not to show us how much he loves us, but in obedience to the will of the father in order that we could be made right with the Father. And so our response to Christ is to turn and to repent of our sin, and then we can experience Christ's love for us and know that he is no longer against us, but that he is indeed for us. You understand, the problem with the first storyline is that you're simply ignorant as to how much God really loves you. The problem in the second storyline is that we are rebels against a holy God. Understand the first storyline, it has nothing of original sin. It has nothing of a need of conversion or repentance or faith or the substitutionary atonement. It has nothing of any of those things. See, the message of the Bible, the story of Scripture, is not simply that you are loved and everyone is loved and we're all loved just the same and God does not punish. He simply heals that you're already accepted. You just need to live in that acceptance. That is not the cry of the Bible. The cry of the Bible is this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as Zephaniah says it, to seek the Lord to humble yourselves, as Jesus said it, to repent and believe. Jesus didn't die merely to show us that he loved us. He died 
in obedience to the will of the Father to pay the price that our sin deserves so that God's wrath could be satisfied and that we could have a right relationship with him. You read Zephaniah and understand there are many who are just flat out embarrassed by a book like this. You'll never hear verses like these preached from many pulpits in America because they're avoided they're embarrassed. I don't want to preach this seeking the Lord. I want to preach God's wrath upon people. You get so many voices telling you that, oh, God, God's not judgmental like that. He's not so temperamental. He's not anger. His wrath doesn't look like this. He's not this wrathful. God, God is not like that. He does not do ill. <laughs> so here's how you ought to think. Here's how you ought to feel. Here's how you ought to live. So many voices. You know, Zephaniah, he speaks of those voices. He does so. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 11. Check it out. It says, the Lord will be awesome against them. That is these false gods. He will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the false gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each to its place, all the lands of the nations. He's speaking about all the false gods here, all these false voices vying for your attention. And Zephaniah says that God is going to famish them. In other words, he's going to starve them to death. You understand, people in those days, they had this idea that, hey, these guys, they, they got to be, uh, you got to make all these sacrifices to them. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And what do those sacrifices do? Well, they nourish them, they sustain them, they make these gods happy and all these things. So you have to continually appease them. And what does God say? He says, I'm going to starve them to death. They've got all these voices. They got all these holds. And you think I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to feel this way. I got to respond like this. And God said, no, you just starve all that to death. I've told you before that, that when you have this behavior and you want to make a change, that the way to make a change is not simply to think, oh man, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. No, when you do that, you always end up doing the thing that you don't want to do, right? It's like, oh man, I don't want to eat any more Oreos. I got to stop eating Oreos. And if you tell yourself all day, no Oreos, no Oreos, no Oreos, no Oreos. <laughs> yeah, by the time you're leaving to go home, what do you do? You stop by the store, you grab a pack of Oreos and you eat half the bag on your way home. That's what happens. See, God, the way he's wired us, he's revealing that here, that if you want to stop a behavior, you don't just think about that behavior that you want to stop. You actually have to fill your mind with something else. And God is saying to us, fill your mind with the one who has the say. Renew your mind by thinking on the scriptures and allow his word to renew your thinking, to fill your mind. And then Christ, he flushes everything else out because he's the one who dominates your life. And he tells you how you ought to feel and how to live. And it is the best life. It's a life of abundance. And the minor prophets, as we deal, we go through these books, we see the depravity of sin because we listen to all these other voices, because they tell us how to feel and how to think and what to do. And we listen to it. And then we see where that leads. We see the depravity of it all. And so the minor prophets, they tell us of a coming judgment of a God who will righteously deal with sin, who will actively pour out his wrath upon sin, who will actively sweep away all of this sin, all of this double-mindedness, all of this hypocrisy. And then in the Minor Prophets, you also see some glorious good news. 
We see that in Zephaniah also. Chapter 2, it focuses on the downfall of all the nations. Hey, it's not just Judah. Judah's not the only one with this sin problem. No, it's all the nations. And so God begins to name them through his prophet. And I'm going to deal with this nation. I'm going to deal with this nation. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deal with every nation. And then comes chapter 3, where he zeroes again back in on Judah's destruction, but then pronounces a message of hope. There's several blessings here. I want to take you through a couple of them. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10, it says this. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that's modern day Ethiopia, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The prophet here is speaking about the conversion of the nations. The God who has authority over all nations, he's actively working to convert all nations. That there will be people of every tribe, of every tongue, who will be there to worship in one accord our God. That he's going to change our speech. (laughs) That we, in one accord, gathered together in this pure speech, will worship him. So understand this, as we make disciples... And as we commission missionaries, and we're all missionaries, wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play, but as we're commissioned off, that we don't just tell people about our God, oh, you need to know my God, and here's how my, no, 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 he's already their God too. Whether they recognize it or not, he is their God. You understand, God is the God of uh, Uganda just as much as he's the God of the United States. He's the God of Israel just as much as he is the God of Iceland. He's the God of Judah just as much as he is the God of Jamaica. He is the God of all nations, and he is working to bring all nations into one nation under our Lord and his Christ. And as he sends us out, his people, as he sends us out, he sends us to make disciples of all nations. The God of the nations sends us to make disciples of all nations, and that is a great blessing. Next blessing, I want you to see it. Zephaniah 3, 11 through 13, the prophet here is talking to Judah. But the same principle applies to all of us. He says this, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall gaze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. On the day of the Lord, after all that double-mindedness, after all that hypocrisy, after all those little superstitions, all that complacency, all that is dealt with and all that is swept away, God makes this promise, there will be no shame. On this great and terrible day of the Lord, for those of us who know him, when our deeds are laid open, our accounts are laid bare, sometimes we think, oh man, this is going to be a day of like such embarrassment. I'm just going to tuck my tail between my legs and just kind of get through it and suffer through it and just kind of limp away. No, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our shame becomes praise and renown for the Lord. Why? Because he imputes his righteousness to us. We're covered in the righteous robes of Jesus, so our shame becomes praise. 
Next blessing, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, it says this, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So God says you will have no enemies. You, you will have no reason to fear evil. Why? Because of this messianic promise here at the end of verse 15. The king, the king, the Lord, he will be in your midst. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 7. Behold, the kingdom of God is now in your midst, is now in the midst of you. The king has come to be with his people. So you don't have to fear evil. You don't have to fear any enemies. And there's this beautiful command. I love this command in verse 14. Rejoice, exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Again, this passage is, is speaking directly to Judah, but the principle applies to all of us because Paul would later say it in Philippians that, hey, rejoice always. Again, I say it, rejoice. See, there are times in life where you just can't help it. Why? Because you're always rejoicing and this joy is just bursting out of you with worship. I mean, the Christian is defined by joy. It's one of the first things people notice about us is joy. And so we rejoice. And why do we rejoice? Because our judgment has been taken from us. And here's another blessing. This one's specifically for Judah. I want you to hear it. Verses 16 through 20 is the way the prophet, the prophet ends uh, his book. Some of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. Verses 16 through 20, it reads, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at the same time, I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You know, you look around the world today and almost every corner of the earth, there is so much anti-Semitism, so much hatred toward Israel, this small, this lowly nation. I mean, it's miraculous that it continues to exist as a country. And God says that he's going to make her renowned, that all the peoples of the earth, that's us, that we will be there and we will be praising her. We will praise God for Israel. But before you get there, there's this incredible picture that God is painting for us. God says that he's going to quiet Israel with his love. That he will exult over Israel with singing. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm not really a singer. I don't, I don't like drive home and on my way home from work just like singing in the car as some people like to do. I don't, I don't do anything like that. Uh, but, there, but there's a way that God works in the heart of people, isn't it? And... When, I, when my kids were just babies and just little, Emma, Bree, Pierce, when they were just little babies in my arms, I'd sing to them. I'd sing their names to them. I'd sing God's blessings over them, and they would sleep. It, it, it was a comforting thing. I don't know how my voice would be comforting to anyone, but it was. And they're singing, and it, and it quiets them down. And God says that he's going to do that for Israel. 
They're, they're like, a, like a good dad just holds his baby and sings over her. God says he does that for Israel. Even more, God says that he's going to gather those who are mourning. He's going to gather the lame. He's going to gather the outcasts. He's going to go get them. They can't make it on their own. They're, they're stuck where they're at. So he's going to go get them, to gather them, to bring them to this celebration of the nations. And understand, this is the good news of the gospel. That we could not get to God on ourselves. We could not find him by ourselves. The good news of the gospel is that while we could not get to God, God, through Christ Jesus, came for us. The good news of the gospel is that while we could not find God, God wasn't lost, he didn't need to be found, that God in Christ Jesus found us. In the midst of our sins, while we were sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. This is the good news of the gospel, that he comes for us and he gathers us and he makes us acceptable. And that once we repent and believe, he clothes us with his righteousness. And this is what he does for Israel. And there's the celebration of the nations when everything else has been swept away. All of the hypocrisy, all of the double-mindedness, all of that. And here's lowly Israel. Here's this outcast. Here's this lame one mourning, perhaps, over how she has crucified her Messiah. And she comes expecting to hear ridicule, expecting to hear taunts of how you were supposed to be God's people. You were supposed to be the light. You were supposed to show us. You had this special covenant relationship with God. You, you, you were the one. And, and this is how you rejected the kingdom. And, and here's how you crucified your Messiah. And, and here's all the, and, and they expect to hear these taunts. And instead, what do they hear? She hears God singing over her quieting her mourning with his love and then being brought in to the celebration of the nations and all the peoples of the earth praising God for her. Why? Because this promise has been fulfilled. Despite all of her sin, all the peoples of the earth have indeed been blessed. Through the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And we recognize that uh, we're not so different than Israel, are we? That we've all are lost. We've all gone our own way. But God in Christ Jesus came to gather us. No more complacency. No more apathy. No more double-mindedness. No more little superstitions. No more hypocrisy. No more sin. God sweeps it all away. No more listening to all these voices on how we should think and what we should do and how we should live. God sweeps it all away and he quiets us with his love, with his love that you are his treasured possession. You are his bride. You are his children. And just as God is passionate against sin, he is passionate in his love for you. And he will have the last say. In his say, it's good. Heavenly Father, we can scarcely believe that the God of the universe would sing over his people, would quiet us with his love, a love demonstrated most gloriously by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So God, may we be a people 
who rejoice as you tell us to, with loud voices rejoice that our judgment has been paid for, that your wrath has been satisfied. We need your help to see that, to hear clearly your voice because you are the one who has the say. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.